Many years ago, I had the privilege of going to Cameroon, West Africa. Our denomination of churches has various ministries there. We've had ministries there for over or nearly a hundred years. Churches, hospitals, schools. And there are many wonderful things to enjoy about Cameroon and Africa. But I want to share with you today two little uh, encounters or stories that I had that uh, point to some of the realities of life there. And the first one was uh, roadblocks. Roadblocks. We never knew when we would run into a roadblock, whether it be a military roadblock or a police roadblock. And they would usually set up their roadblocks right after a bend in the road. And so you would come around a corner and there would be a roadblock of police or military standing there. And they would immediately stop you and they would ask the driver what the business was of the people in the van. And then they would ask for all of our papers or our passports. And if it was night, they would shine their flashlights in to look at us in the face, shine the flashlight in the face, and then shine at our papers. And a lot of times they said they would not let us go until we paid, which was, of course, a bribe, a fee to get through the roadblock. And sometimes our guides would maybe try to talk their way through it, Sometimes, I don't know if they maybe did pay a little bit, but often we would have to wait. And so that was a bit frustrating sometimes. You'd be on your way, you'd plan how much time you'd have to take to get to a place, but then you never knew how long it would take to get there because there would be a roadblock across the road. The other neat thing, well, it was neat to me, but it probably wasn't neat to everyone else in the van at the moment when it happened, was one day we had to get gas and the guide said to us, we're going to get gas before we get on our way today. And uh, I thought, oh, okay, whatever, we're gonna go to a gas station. Except the driver pulled up beside this sugarcane field. And sugarcane, a mature crop of sugarcane is taller than most humans. And so the driver pulled up and then our guide got out and he talked to this guy on the side of the road and he handed over a few bills and all of a sudden, a bunch of young men came out from the sugar cane with five-gallon uh, five drums, or whatever you call them, containers of gas on their shoulders, and they filled up our van with gas, which was really neat, I thought, but slightly illegal, yet it felt good. But I heard from the missionaries, and I heard from the locals that we worked with about the different types of corruption that you would run into as you tried to carry on with your daily life. And so I thought, wow, those are, those are some interesting challenges that they face there. And I remember coming back and, and then one time talking with a friend of mine from Nigeria, which is the next nation over from Cameroon. And I shared with him, you know, that, wow, there's like this right out in the open corruption there and they, have, they want bribes and all this stuff, you know, it's, it's corrupt there. Uh, there's some corruption and he said, yeah, yeah, there is some corruption that's pretty obvious, but in Canada, we have uh, institutionalized corruption. Um, it's not as obvious, but it's there. And I've never forgotten what he said. And I thought to myself, oh, well, you know, we think that we Canadians are so advanced and we have such an advanced society and we would never, you know, allow stuff like that to happen. And yet, there's corruption that we have to deal with in our 
different worlds that is a little bit more hidden, a little bit more behind the scenes. And we have the same problems, but they just manifest in different ways. So think for a moment about institutional corruption in our country, in our world. It can, it can exist in an organization, in a government department, in a business, in a school or a university or a charity, or even in a church. And maybe lying is tolerated, maybe favoritism is shown, maybe rules or policies or laws are suggested or passed that go against God's ways, maybe harassment is tolerated or bullying is overlooked, and the individual feels powerless to deal with the corruption in the institution or the, the, the situation that is against them. And add to that the relativism of our society that we talked about last week and the addictions that we have to materialism and to substances to try to deal with life and the injustice of some decisions that impact us and the oppression of the poor and vulnerable and we see all kinds of issues, problems and effects of evil in our world and in our culture and in our country. And sometimes these things will touch us personally. Think about those times when you are overlooked for a job because someone else knows someone in the company. And you deserved it, but you get overlooked. Or think about the fact we can't find a doctor because of some political decision that limits access to further care. Or our taxes go up with little or no explanation. Or we all have to deal with the deception and the lies that the enemy tries to plant in our minds. So we live in a world where there is evil and there are the forces of evil and the devil is active. And we have a question. Many people have questions. For some people, this is a reason they don't believe in God. They wonder, what is God doing about evil. What is God doing about the devil? If God is good, why is there evil? Why is there so much suffering? And I'm here to tell you today, friends, that God has already done something about evil. God is doing something about evil, and God will do something about evil decisively in the future. And that's what we're going to look at today as we continue in our study of Ezekiel. The passage we're looking at today will reveal what God will ultimately do about evil on the last day. So we're going to look at that and then think about how God's promise to decisively defeat evil on the last day in the future can help us live with grace and with hope today. So here's what I'm going to try to prove for you today. Since the Lord will destroy evil someday, we can live with hope by grace today. And by evil, I mean all the beings and the spiritual forces of evil and death and sin and the world that are opposed to God. That's what I mean by evil. And by destroy, I mean complete destruction and judgment so that there is no future ability to torment, deceive, or oppress ever again. So again, the statement, 
Since the Lord will destroy evil someday, we can live with hope by grace today. And to look at this today, our focus passage is going to be Ezekiel 38. So if you have a Bible or you want to follow along in the Bibles in front of you, it's on page 618. But I'm going to bracket Ezekiel 38 with a short reading from Genesis before and a short reading from Revelation after. Okay, so we're going to start today in Genesis 10, verses 1 and 2, then we're going to do Ezekiel 38, and then we're going to go to Revelation 20. Okay, so here's Genesis 10, verses 1 and 2, and I'd like you to listen for the names that are mentioned in this passage. So Genesis 10, verses 1 and 2. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tiras. So again, the names Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tiras. So that's Genesis 10. Now to Ezekiel 38. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, who we just read about in Genesis 10, and prophesy against him and say, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws, and I will bring you out and all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed in full armor, a great host, all of them with buckler and shield, wielding swords. Persia, Cush, and Put are with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer, who was also in Genesis 10, and all his hordes, Beth Togarma, from the uttermost parts of the north, with all his hordes, many peoples are with you. Be ready and keep ready, you and all your hosts that are assembled about you, and be a guard for them. After many days you will be mustered. In the latter years you will go against the land that is restored from war, the land whose people were gathered from many peoples, upon the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste. Its people were brought out from the peoples and now dwell securely, all of them. And you will advance, coming on like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the land, you and all your hordes and many peoples with you. And thus says the Lord God, on that day, thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil scheme and say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will fall upon the quiet people who dwell securely, all of them dwelling without walls and having no bars or gates. To seize spoil and carry off plunder, to turn your hand against the waste places that are now inhabited and the people who were gathered from the nations, who have acquired livestock and goods, who dwell at the center of the earth. And Sheba and Adan and the merchants of Tarshish and all its leaders will say to you, Have you come to see spoil? Have you assembled your host to carry off plunder, to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods, to seize great spoil? Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, 
Thus says the Lord God, on that day when my people Israel are dwelling securely, will you not know it? You will come from your place out of the uppermost parts of the north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great host, a mighty army. You will come against my people Israel like a cloud covering the land. In the latter days I will bring you against my land that the nations may know me when through you, O Gog, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Thus says the Lord God, are you he of whom I spoke in former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel, who in those days prophesied for years that I would bring you against them, but on that day, the day that Gog shall come against the land of Israel, declares the Lord God, my wrath will be roused in my anger, for in my jealousy and in my blazing wrath I declare, on that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. The fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the fields and all the creeping things that creep on the ground and all the people who are on the face of the earth shall quake at my presence. And the mountains shall be thrown down and the cliffs shall fall and every wall shall tumble to the ground. I will summon a sword against Gog on all my mountains, declares the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother with pestilence and bloodshed, I will enter into judgment with him and I will rain upon him and his hordes and the many peoples who are with him torrential rains and hailstones, fire and sulfur. So I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. And finally, listen to Revelation 20. Verses 7 to 10. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now remember I entitled this series, series Ezekiel, the weirdest book in the Bible? And Ezekiel 38 qualifies as one of the chapters. So we're going to try to understand this by looking for God to deal with evil. So, let's begin. It starts in verse 1 with Ezekiel recounting another word from the Lord. And the Lord instructs Ezekiel to turn his face towards someone called Gog. And please show mercy to me today. Because I'm going to be talking about God and Gog throughout this message, and I might get it wrong sometimes, okay? So I might attribute something to God that Gog said. So mercy, please, mercy. So the Lord instructs Ezekiel to turn his face towards this Gog of the land of Magog. And he is known as the chief prince of places called Meshech and Tubal. 
So this Gog in Ezekiel is some sort of prince. And all these people from different nations join this prince to form a super army. And remember, Magog, Meshach, and Tubal all showed up in Genesis 10. So they were actual people groups that existed after the flood. And they lived north of Israel, likely in Turkey, south of the Black Sea. And then according to verse 5, Gog is joined by Persia, Cush, and Put. Well, Persia is modern-day Iran. Cush is modern-day Ethiopia. Put is modern-day Libya. So Persia or Iran is to Israel's east. Ethiopia is to Israel's south. Put is to Israel's west. And you have nations from the four compass points combining to go against the people of God, Israel. But who is this Gog person? Well, it's unlikely he actually existed during Ezekiel's time. He will come in the future, and there may be a person who fulfills this Gog figure, but more important than the actual person is the power behind the person. Gog represents a Satan-empowered threat that wants to strike at God and his inheritance, his people. He wants to devour them for his God, Satan. And in some ways, Gog is a combination of all that the prophet said about rebellious nations against God. One commentator also notes how Gog acts like the ultimate Pharaoh. Remember Pharaoh from the Exodus story and how he hardened his heart against the Lord God? Well, this Gog has a hard and selfish heart. He is an evil king with a super army out to destroy God's people. And in your bulletins today, there's a picture from the Bible project that portrays this. So Gog is in the middle of the picture and he's portrayed as this evil king with these hordes that are surrounding him to make war against God's people. Yet notice, even in these first verses, there is hope. There is hope because God is opposed to Gog and declares that. Verse 3, behold, I am against you, O Gog. And then notice, the Lord is in charge of Gog. In verse 4, I will turn you about and put hooks in your jaws and I will bring you out. Well, that was an image, a reality, sadly, of what conquering nations did to their prisoners of war. They would stick hooks through their jaws and lead them to wherever they wanted them to go. So this is a portrayal that Gog is God's servant, even though it doesn't seem like it at first. So we have Gog, the evil prince, leading armies from the four corners of the compass, and they come to ravage God's people. And God's people are living, as described here, in a land restored from war. They are a people gathered from all the peoples. They live on the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste, and they are restored. And so this is a picture that Ezekiel has been promising to the exiles. This is what you will one day have to look forward to. I'm going to restore you. The Lord's going to restore you, bring you back to your land. You will live in peace. And they live securely. And so it's a beautiful image, except Gog 
and his armies are coming. And then in verse 11, we're told a very alarming detail. The people of God are defenseless. They do not live in walled cities. They have no army. They have no gates, no bars in the gates or the windows. They are easy prey for Gog's super army. How can the Lord say they are a quiet people who dwell securely? Unless they know something. Unless they have put their whole trust in God to watch over them. Yet Gog thinks he and his army are going to have easy pickings. And so do the other merchants in verses 12 and 13 who are watching and saying, Gog, are you coming to despoil, to take all that you want from this people? We want to join in with you and take the spoil. And then in verses 14 to 16, the Lord again predicts the attack of Gog and his armies against his people. And he describes them like a cloud covering the land. So they're a super army. And it seems like there is no hope. It seems like Gog will certainly win until verse 16 when the Lord says, In the latter days I will bring you against my land that the nations may know, may know me when through you, O Gog, I will vindicate my holiness before their eyes. How is that possible? Gog and his super army are going to come and sweep down and wipe out your people. How are you going to vindicate your holiness? And the Lord reveals how in verse 18. But on that day, my wrath will be roused in my anger. Verse 19, for in my jealousy, and that's the good kind of jealousy. There's a good jealousy and a bad jealousy. The good jealousy is for the good and protection of another, not the jealousy of others. So in God's good jealousy and in his blazing wrath, there shall be a great earthquake in the land that all the creatures of the world will feel. And the mountains and cliffs shall fall. So, well, that'll put a dent in an army. And then verse 21, I'll summon a sword against Gog on all my mountains, declares the Lord God. And then the army will start killing one another. Well, well that's going to be another dent in the army this earthquake, then they're going to start killing each other. And then, verse 22, the Lord really blasts Gog's army with pestilence, bloodshed, torrential rains, hailstorm, stones, fire, and sulfur so that Gog and his army will be completely wiped out. And the bottom part of the drawing portrays this. On the top, you see Gog coming to attack. On the bottom, Gog and his army are completely wiped out. And they're not just stunned, they're dead. Never to rise again. And the Israelites will live off the plunder. And this is going to happen in the latter days. So think about how this message would impact the exiles living with Ezekiel in Babylon. They're living in a nation that scorns God, in a nation that has all this power, is the superpower of the world. They have no king. They have little hope of restoration. Jerusalem is destroyed. The temple is destroyed. 
But the Lord promises not only to deal with Babylon, but evil one day. And the prince of evil, Satan himself. And then in Revelation 20, the Apostle John uses images from Ezekiel 38 and 39 to describe this last battle. Satan is released from his prison. He'll come out to deceive the nations from the four corners of the earth, John says. And John calls them Gog and Magog. To bring his readers back to here, Ezekiel 38 and 39. And Satan leads this massive army against the saints in the beloved city. But fire comes down from heaven to strike them down. And Satan is thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. Never to torment or deceive ever again. And this is the dramatic picture of the Lord's decisive defeat of evil on the last day. So back to our statement. Since the Lord will destroy evil someday, that's the claim, we can live with hope by grace today. How? Well, I hope that you experienced a little hope and that your heart was lifted a little at this picture of evil getting struck down. We live in a world where evil seems to be winning, but here's a picture of evil getting struck down, completely and decisively defeated. That can bring hope into our hearts as we look forward to that day. But there is that other thing that we have to deal with until that last day comes. And it's called life in this world. It's great that God's going to deal with evil and the devil someday, but what about today? What about the things that we face in our lives that are a result of evil and the devil's oppression? Or to put it another way, what is God doing about the evil and evil and devil today? Well, here's six actions. And if you're following along on uh, the bulletin now, you can get your pencil ready or pen to fill in the blanks or make some notes. These six actions I hope will encourage you. Number one, we must remember that Christ through his death and resurrection has already decisively defeated Satan at the cross. So, so listen to Colossians 2, verses 14 and 15. Christ canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So Jesus nailed our sins to the cross and he took all the condemnation weapons that Satan has out of his hands. So Satan can no longer accuse us, no longer condemn us, no longer say we're guilty because Jesus took our sins and nailed them to the cross. So Satan can still rage at us, but he can't condemn us. So first, remember, Jesus has already decisively defeated the devil on the cross. Number two, Christ defeats Satan and evil now through Christians who believe in him and put on the full armor of God. So Ephesians 6, 10 to 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the devil's schemes. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of darkness 
or over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. So did you know that if you put on the armor of God and you take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and you pray and you just stand in the midst of Satan's onslaughts, that is victory over the devil. For us to stand and withstand the devil's schemes and the devil's assaults, Christ is declared victorious when his people stand in faith. Number three, God defeats Satan and evil today by redirecting evil intentions for his good purposes. And we already have seen this in Ezekiel 38 where Gog thought he was going to come and wipe out God's people, but instead God used Gog's approach to glorify himself. So evil intentions are turned around to be used for God's glory. Or you might know the Joseph story from the latter part of Genesis, where Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers, and God then uses Joseph to save his brothers from famine. And in Genesis 50, verse 20, Joseph says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So God turns these evil intentions around for his good purposes. Or think about the religious leaders who opposed Jesus, thought they were doing God's will by opposing Jesus, so they convinced the Romans to crucify him, but God uses those evil intentions to accomplish the greatest saving act in history. So God is working against evil today by using evil intentions and turning them around for his good purposes. Number four, Jesus defeats Satan now by progressively destroying the works of the devil. So 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appears, appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And we can actually join Jesus in this work. Especially, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to demolish strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So we join Jesus in destroying the works of the devil when we use prayer and we use his word to demolish strongholds. And sometimes those strongholds are in our own lives. They're strongholds of thoughts of lies that we have believed about the devil. We use God's word, we speak God's word to those lies that the devil has planted in us about ourselves or about the world and that stronghold in our life or that oppression in our life is defeated. Number five, which we looked at today, Satan will finally be destroyed and thrown into the lake of fire never to deceive or torment again. So that's Revelation 27, verse 7, and Romans 16, verse 20, which says the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And then number six, when God's people live by the grace God supplies to sustain them through Satan's rage, for he will still rage against us, Satan 
and evil are defeated. And I, I missed the word hope in that statement because that is key. We need to live with hope by grace. And when we do that, Satan is defeated. Listen to Hebrews 6, verses 17 to 20, and listen for the words hope, or the word hope. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, you and me, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. So so the point of that passage is God cannot lie, and God has promised to decisively defeat Satan and his forces, and in Hebrews we see there is a certain and sure foundation upon which we can trust God to do that. When God promises something, he's going to fulfill it. He can't lie. And so we receive hope to endure until that day when Jesus decisively defeats Satan and evil. I have just two more things to say. Number one, if you're not a Christian... You may think, you know, no hope for me. I haven't lived a good enough life to earn a place at God's table. And it's just too late with the things that I've done. Here's a news flash for you. None of us earned a place at God's table. None of us in this room. God saved us all by grace. He brought us near because Jesus gave himself up on the cross to pay for our sins. And by his blood... We are forgiven and brought into God's family and we're declared not guilty forever. So if you're not a believer, if Satan's going to keep on with the condemnation thing on you, you are guilty. God will never, never accept you. And you have to turn away from looking at your own life and your own accomplishments and turn to Christ and say, oh, save me, oh God. Save me based on what Jesus has done. And so if, if that's you, that's what you need to pray. And turn your life onto Christ and what he has done. If you're a Christian, I don't want to minimize the reality of Satan's rage against us. Some of you going through really tough times, suffering with different types of evil being thrust upon you. So in no way am I trying to minimize this. But God has seen to it that we know this information that that we see the end and that this is certain it's going to happen and that he's already on our side today and he's already actively doing his work and addressing evil and pushing it back and destroying the works of the devil today and so and so wherever you're at today maybe you're just barely hanging on and, and maybe all God's calling you today is to do today is to trust his word and trust him and his word and that's it 
to trust him in his word. That, that's what you need to do today with whatever you're facing. And so as we come to before God in prayer, I want to pray for you. Let's pray together. And Lord God, uh, sometimes it's hard for us to believe that you actually are doing something about evil when we've been through such a difficult time through a severe hardship. Some this past week have walked through a very difficult time. And Satan loves to use these kinds of times to cast doubt about you and to um, claim that you've forgotten us, that you don't care about us that you're uninterested, that you don't really love us. And, and so right now, Lord, we, we pray for clarity of thinking regarding you and your name and who you are. And Lord, we pray that... I, I pray for our brothers and sisters here today that are struggling, and I, I pray that, that you will cut through the fog of lies that may be clouding their thinking today, that you don't care and that you don't love them. And I pray that you will open our eyes to the smiling, compassionate, powerful gaze of Jesus. And whatever you are facing in your life today, I want you to look at it through the lens of looking at Jesus, looking at Jesus first. And remembering who he is. And what, he, what he's powerful. How he's powerful to deal with whatever. And, and, and put your trust onto him. And, and Lord God, we pray against any discouraging words or distractions from the enemy right now in Jesus' name. And we pray for clarity of thought and clearness and hope to fill us as a body. Because... You will one day completely destroy evil, but until that day, you walk with us and empower us to keep going. And we praise you and pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.